Hello and welcome to episode two of Conquest of the Useless, a podcast about media and all that kind of thing. Today I am massively, massively privileged to have uh, Ben Hammersley as my guest. Ben got me into being allowed to write for Wired before I was blacklisted by Wired. I was then allowed, before that, I was allowed to write from them. Um, I'll tell the story of my blacklisting from Wired in the next edition of the newsletter. Very funny and I fucked up big time, so it was my fault. But anyway, that's that's another story for another day. But uh, Ben is a futurist, a word he seems massively uncomfortable saying, or a strategic foresight guru, or just like a very good writer who has done a lot of interesting things in his time. So the reason I've got Ben on the podcast, uh, listener, I imagine you hearing this, is um, Ben basically coined the word podcast, and he's uncomfortable about that uh, but that is that. Uh, and i'm gonna kick over to ben now to ask him to explain how he came to coin the word podcast go it was, <laughs> good morning um yeah the podcast thing has followed me around since 2004 so i feel like it's i feel like i'm cursed because literally everywhere i go you know i stand on stage a lot and and give talks to people international audiences or at least I did before the pandemic. And I'm inevitably um, introduced as the man who invented the word podcast, which is, yeah, which is, which is reminiscent of the joke about, you know, the goat and the thing. Anyway, the the story about inventing the word podcast was that I, um, in the early 2000s, I was, I was a journalist for the Guardian and I was also building lots of tech, building lots of things for the Guardian and, and, coding lots of stuff and writing lots of um, sort of programming textbooks. And one of the books that you I wrote... You were curve with this stuff, though, weren't you? Because to be that yeah. kind of mixture of journalist and maker of things wasn't that common. That's right. And in fact, that was the reason that I did it, was that uh, in, the, in the late 90s, early 2000s, I was, one of the f- I was one of a handful of maybe four or five full-time national newspaper internet reporters so I, I not not working on the internet but writing about the internet in the paper and it became very clear i think in the late 90s that um the majority of the people who were writing about technology then were really people who'd just been moved into that section from say the motoring section mm-hmm. or from the culture pages or or whatever it was just it was just like a dead end bit of a newspaper and they weren't they weren't subject specialists in any way. Mm. And certainly at the time, the idea was that you would have a general purpose reporter who would be able to deliver um, good reporting for the general reader because they were also coming at it from the point of view of a general reader and therefore would be able to ask the sort of questions that a general reader would want to ask. Would it almost be a bit like they almost were treating the internet as like this new city and like you just had to put a reporter in that city and say the rules are basically the same it's just this online thing is a thing we need to cover so we cover it no or is that- I, I think it's i think actually in in when i went on staff at the times which was in 90 um 98 mm. uh it, the internet was really seen as like skateboarding or hula hoops or something like right. that. It was just going to be this passing fad, and they hoped. And, and yeah, and well, they didn't even. It wasn't even a hope because they didn't see the implications of it. And it was just a thing where there was enormous amounts of advertising potentially available. So in many ways, it was sort of like like luxury watches are for 
glossy magazines, you know, Wired or GQ or people like that, you know, you, you every year you have to do a glossy, uh, you know, a, a shiny watch yeah. like supplement because that's that, that's the advertising right? drive, yeah, right. And so, so I was I was brought on because I actually did have technical knowledge and understanding of the subject, uh, but I was one of the few, and I realized that to write really well at a general reader level about the internet, I had to be at a much higher level. And the only way that you could be cut to get to that level about an emerging technology is really is to make, is to make it, right? right? Is to be, yeah. yeah, is to become a practitioner. And so I was, I had this weird hybrid job uh, by about 2003, 2004, I had this weird hybrid job, which was I was, building things and i was uh reporting on technology and i was also the the platforms that i was building enabled me to do foreign news reporting so i was also reporting from afghanistan and places like that and so i had this sort of weird three-way career but one of the parts of that career was that i'd wrote i'd written a book for o'reilly which is uh, and still is the big technical book publisher and i wrote the original textbook on RSS and um, all of the sort of different syndication feeds that you can use to syndicate content around the web. And podcasts are built on that technology. And so I was very, very, very early on part of the technical conversations around how to actually do it in the first place. And so this gave me a story. Not enough people, not enough people know who Dave Weiner is. I think like- <laughs> no, no, quite, uh, kind of the opposite. In right. that, in that, I ended up having general people don't know who he is, though. General people don't know who he is, and and I had I wrote a couple of articles. <laughs> this is a this is a digression. I wrote a couple of articles about. Um, oh, for the listener, by the way, Dave Weiner like was quite heavily involved in like RSS being a, a thing. He developed. He- you know he certainly was and and he was also i think he was also heavily involved in in blogging and things like that but he has i have to be quite careful here even even almost 20 years later but um he has a different view of the origin of some of these things he's a difficult person he's he's a difficult he's a very difficult person who who did try and get me sacked on multiple occasions Um, (laughs) but that's another story but failed. That's right. Um, but but anyway, the, the point was, as I was I was part of the technical um, sort of community that was building this stuff and podcasting, or at least the or at least at the time, you know, the use of the enclosures tag in RSS to deliver or um, audio files uh, to a podcast to a to an RSS client, which would enable a subscription um, periodic download of MP3s, blah blah blah, um, was something that was really interesting, and people were starting to do it. But it was maybe thirty or forty people in the world who were doing it, um, and at the same time there were people who were um and in fact i wrote some code to do this as well which was to scrape the real player um streams of radio 4 uh and record record some programs off radio 4 and make them into mp3s and so you could have an rss feed which was the the original one was in our time the melvin bragg show 
Um, and so th- these things were happening in the background. People were doing them ad hoc and stuff like that. And so I ended up pitching it as a story for The Guardian, um, for the technology section of The Guardian. And, and I wrote it for the paper. And at that time, The Guardian, as with all national papers, were paper first and then website afterwards. So you would make the daily paper, you would go off stone for the first edition, and then sometime late at night, you would have a team of people who would literally cut and paste stuff over from the paper yeah. into the web CMS, and it would Which go live. CMS. Exactly. And, and there was a whole team of people who did that, you know, at four o'clock in the morning. Um, so, so everything was written to the paper deadline. And I wrote this article about this new phenomenon of automatically downloaded audio programs. And, and there was a, um, I wrote it with maybe like 10 minutes to go before right, yeah. the first edition deadline. And I got a, a phone call from my editor at the, at the Guardian at the time who said, hey, Ben, look, we've just put it on the page and it's like a sentence short and we don't want to redraw the page hmm. because we've only got 10 minutes. So can you just like write another sentence? Like, can we, yeah. we just need like, you know, 15 more words. Uh, yes, when you make magazines, it's the same. You've got to fill a gap, so you fill the gap. Right. Yeah, you fill the gap. And so, and so with about 10 minutes to go before the deadline, I just sort of spewed out a sentence, which... If you read the original pieces, the sentence is kind of bullshit. It's something like, but what do we call this new phenomenon? Maybe, and then I made up some words. Mm. And one of them was the word podcast. And it went into the paper, and then it went online. And that was kind of all I ever thought about it. I mean, literally, you know, it's tomorrow's fish wrap, right? But then about six months later, I got an email from the Oxford English Dictionary saying, um, you use the word podcast in the article of February, the whatever, um, where did you get that from? Hmm. Did you like my brain? I, yeah, well, I, I pulled it out of my over-caffeinated ass. What do you, you know, yeah. I was under it. And they said, yes, that's what we think too, because they couldn't find a previous citation. Hmm. And um, that's got, You're bored of it now, but at the time, was that not slightly exciting? For me, it's like a Shakespeare thing. You know, you could coin a word like... That's gonna yeah. that survives you. That's gonna that will last a long time. It, it, at the time, it wasn't really exciting, but since then, it ha- every so often, I have this moment where where you suddenly realise like a, a a word like a, like this a silly thing that you did on, on a random moment is now on a couple of billion devices in people's pockets, yeah. for example. And I actually, love the serendipitous nature of it, like it's just that's like creativity in its purest form really because you right. go okay there's ipods like pod is a good like pre- prefix for something cast is like makes sense bosh put that together put it there yeah and, and that was the, that was probably the limit of the thinking to be honest but no organization would come up with a name that good that quickly no and 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 it would go through too many committees yeah it'd uh, be ruined and the thing that the thing that sort of the moment it actually really hit me in that way was actually only a few months ago, which I was sort of sat on the sofa watching, um, watching the good place. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And, and there's a, there's a, at the end of, at the end of one of the seasons, like one of the final lines that Ted Danson has is something about, well, she just listens to some podcasts. And, and my wife sort of turned to me and was like, isn't it weird that he just said a word you invented? 
and it was like Ted Danson said my word, and you're like, yeah. actually, that is kind of a thing. So is um, the frustrating part of it for you that you do a lot of interesting work and had done interesting work before that and still do it, and that like even me emailing you out of the blue and going, "Hey, I want to talk about the future podcast." But the thing is, right? I only wanted that story. That story is only like what we're twelve minutes into this podcast. Sure. I think this podcast will end up being about forty minutes. So actually, three quarters of this podcast is going to be about like the future and things that you are more interested in talking about Mm -hmm. but it always i'm gonna just give you a sense of how i think about you now this is (laughs) i think you are one of the few people i've met who feels like a character that william gibson could have written like that has been uh, i have been accused of that and it's actually kind of weird we we follow each other on twitter and it's very strange but in a good way there's you and there's a guy called dan hon and the two of you i thought think of as like the william gibson characters that i know and have interacted with in my life but in a positive way like you'd be good characters you know um i think dan is probably more so um but i think it's you've both had this ability to uh, think about things in a way where where i go that's very interesting you'd look at the world as it is and make almost all futurists are wankers and you're not a wanker and that's really interesting <laughs> like you're because yeah okay that's no that's good I'm actually going to use that as a tagline from now on all futurists are wankers but all futurists are wankers but he's not and that's interesting I think is actually here's, quite my reasoning. here's my reasoning for that right were you a normal futurist yeah. and I called you up and I said talk about how you invented the word podcast yeah. The way the story would be framed would center you and it would retrospectively be created about how you have a lot of foresight. But the yeah. way you tell the story, and I love the way you tell the story, is I did a job and being a journalist, I keep trying to tell people this. And one of the reasons I do the newsletter is to make people understand that journalism is like a, me- a, mu- a messy, fucked up, gossipy, cruel, brutal, exciting world. And that... Mm. You know, I was a music journalist for a while and I met some of the biggest stars in the world and a lot of them were terrible and some of them were normal. And, Mm. you know, it was an occasion where I think Tom Jones might have accidentally seen my penis. Like these things happen and you go, that's mental. That shouldn't be possible. Like I'm a kid who grew up in Norfolk. I'm just a normal person. That's not right. But the way you tell the story is brilliant because you just say, I had to fill a line in. I was doing my job, which I'm good at doing. You don't make out that you're not good. You are good at your job, but also you're yeah. just doing what you needed to do. And yeah. that's why you're better, I think, at making educated guesses about the future because you do it in a way where I feel you're saying, on the basis of the things I know and the stuff I've thought about for a long time, this is what I think comes next. Rather than going, I have massive balls and I am king of the world. And that's what some yeah. future and i can't stand that yeah i think there is definitely uh, thank you i think that i think there's definitely a um a presence there's a definitely a presentation style um that came out of silicon valley and and sort of came out of almost out of it's steroidal ted that's the way mm, I think. yeah yeah and and i think i think it's it's sort of it's a cross between sort of ted and american motivational speakers people like um tony robbins and and there's a little bit of 
uh, like evangelical preacher stagecraft terrifies me but mostly i think the thing with with those guys is that it is it's very easy to stand up in front of people and make yourself valuable by scaring the crap out of your audience by telling them by telling them something which is couched in technical language which is immediately incredibly threatening and but yet also has certain cultural tropes which people find exciting so if you talk about so a good example of that is um robots going to take your jobs yeah which is not true which is not true but it's kind of true but it's true in a very very subtle and interesting way but nobody is nobody's excited about subtlety and interestingness what they're excited about is being in terminated 2 would it not be more like robots are going to give you new jobs yes of course but 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 that's but that that doesn't make you to, to be sort of like brutally honest you can't if you say to somebody Artificial intelligences are going to produce really interesting tools which will enable you to augment your working practices to make you more efficient and effective at the things you do. And not only that, but will create a whole series of, of other career pathways which will which will feed into whole new careers. And so you will find, as many people of our generation and younger will have found, that the jobs you'll be doing in five years' time don't currently exist today yeah. and we don't have the language and blah, 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 right? You can say that and people will be like, well, that's very interesting. But, uh, but and that'll be the, genuine and sensible way of doing it or you can stand on stage in with like blue hair in a hoodie and you can go yeah and you can and you can go robots going to take your jobs and uh you either uh you know adjust or you will be destroyed and who wants to be part of the resistance and and you sort of make everybody in the audience feel like they're in um you know an action movie and that is incredibly compelling and and you can if you're charismatic at it you can do it very well and you can get you can really like hit the base emotions of the audience and you can be paid a lot of money to do that but it doesn't really give you know honest um or actionable insight into the genuine nature of the innovation. And so I feel like well, that's not valuable for clients. Like if you've got clients, you, what your clients actually want is actionable things, isn't it? That's true. But there are two things there. there you, you, you've got to be careful in mixing up two things. There are sort of two yeah. types of two types of futurist or strategic forecast or whatever. One is the onstage preacher. Yeah. And the other, and the other one is the 50 page report writer and the Which onstage and I'm kind of I can do both. Yeah. Um, what one? But what one keeps you? What one keeps your family and Netflix subscriptions and and nice plots? The onstage preacher is yeah. infinitely higher paid. Right. Um, what I try to do is I try to give a nuanced and complex and uh, you know intellectually backupable if that's the word justifiable but charismatically given an exciting yeah. presentation um but what i won't do is i won't stand on stage and go in the future we will all be living we will all be you know t- 
taking flying self-driving flying cars to work yeah. and robots will do our jobs right because not only not is true. it not true for the vast majority of people mm. but it's also not as interesting actually as, as the, the genuine as the yeah. genuine reality yeah and so and so this i think the one of the dangers of of all sorts of futurism is that you don't actually talk about the future what instead you're doing is you're actually just reiterating the science fiction you read as a teenager to an audience who read the same science fiction and you're so, talking about your mutual anxieties no i'm just talking about just the, no, the no, I want to say, when, when you talk about science fiction aren't you often talking about your like our shared anxieties for oh, me yeah. like like hard sci-fi is all about it's going to be shit and you're going to survive because you're going to be aware that it's going to be shit. Sure. And what I love about like, say where Gibson has moved to is he's talking about like so near term that it's, it can't really, it's not science fiction anymore. It's like, it's a new thing. Uh, Yeah. So I think, I think it's, 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 um, I think I think it's very indicative if you look at some of the people who today are held up as thought leaders or as great innovators and look at what it is they're actually doing and what you find I think in many cases is that they are just making real what was in the science fiction of the 1960s. So yeah. Elon Musk is a good example of this. Um I have Many thoughts about Elon Musk, but Elon Musk is very litigious. But nevertheless, um, if you look at if you look at the businesses he's in, he's in rocket ships and flying cars, right? Yeah. He's basically running a sort of he's he's basically building his teenage book collection. He wants to do the Jetsons, right? And and that's not to me that's not innovative. I, I, so I do an awful lot of work with, say, um, with cities and and with the um, car industry. Right. People, and I do a lot of work with like the future of transportation. Because the and car so, industry knows it's not going to be the car industry for much longer. Well, indeed. And so when you when you talk to people about the future of transportation, what they usually want you to talk about is self driving cars. And my, um, I don't think they'll happen. Not well, like. Well, I think the self-driving car, as it, as it is perceived today, is really the dying last gasp of the car industry. It's because it isn't actually anything. It doesn't change anything. The fact the car drives itself isn't is I mean, it's very cool. It's, it's very cool technology. But you could you could have a person do it, right? A self-driving car is really just a very expensive equivalent of a chauffeur, right? Yeah. And nobody says chauffeurs are innovative. The self-driving car is just still a car, whereas to me, the future of transportation is the electric assist cargo bicycle. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Or is or is Zoom, right? Yeah. Or is or is you know, any of the other things that mean that you don't have to have cars in the first place. When we're talking about, and and so an awful lot of futurism is around um, kind of taking people's emotional reactions to change and either ramping them up and giving them a scare, so the robot's going to take your jobs, or it's taking their it's taking their favorite thing, 
giving it a veneer of futuriness and then saying this is what's going to be like yeah. people then comprehend it and they'll be relieved their tension will be relieved so self-driving cars whereas actually most futurism if it if you if you look at any sort of prediction more than about five years out if it is not so weird that you can't possibly comprehend it then it's not true right right that's that, that's a that's a good uh, yeah that makes sense that makes sense. You you have to have a you have to have a veneer of complete insanity uh, over the top of it um, for it to be at all accurate, or at least if it's not accurate, at least it's it's inaccurate in an interesting way. Okay. And I think that's where um, Gibson is 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 uh, you know Gibson's talked about this a lot, where he calls it the fucked the fucked upness quotient, right? Yeah. And which is the just you take the present day and you just make it a little bit more fucked up and yeah. and brexit and president trump is much more of a fucked upness catalyst than yeah. than going oh well we can you know put men on the moon like yeah. or land rockets back well, on their tail it, or something it like breaks that. it breaks like decades or decades and actually hundreds of years of uh, norms being established and i think what mm -hmm. frustrates me a lot with political coverage now which is something i think about a lot and i guess what i'm becoming is mm -hmm. someone who analyzes the media in this right. in this way that the media doesn't enjoy because i my newsletter is me going here's how they make it and why it's wrong and they don't like that so i'm in a feud with david aronovich at the moment because i think he should be fired from the times he never gets the calls right he's never got a call right since 2003 and right. all he's doing is trying to kill his marxist teenage self which is like <laughs> that's a psychological disorder and it shouldn't be in the newspaper <laughs> hi david i know you watch all my stuff um anyway with that one thing i want to talk about this is an interesting thing about the future from the past is i think we've only met in person once Mm. yeah probably we met in person at a conference at king's place and we talked for about five minutes mm. and i had just stopped working at q magazine uh which was a really hard thing because i'd been dreaming of working at q magazine and i went and it was horrible because i wanted to be a music journalist in 1975 and it turned out that in sure 20 2009 it was sure. really crap and actually sure. Journalist now has got better again because the old silos are dying and that's quite powerful and music magazines are getting better because execs don't see as much money in them so editors like ted kessler at q are now allowed to make weird mad magazines because it's like he's dying anyway just let him do what he wants and actually it's now good again which is mad they should have just let people make it anyway so we met we met once you connected me with david rowan david mm. rowan to america to write about the death about the the Kodak being like a dying whale going, Oh yes, indeed. Yeah. And it was amazing. And it was, I'd done some foreign reporting, but I'd never done like American style, go for four days, talk to every executive, do some mad things. And then I got sent to, I pitched, they're bringing back Polaroid. Let me go to old Polaroid factory. And I the was impossible the first project. Right. Yeah. No one else had written about that before. Yeah. I wrote about it. It's crazy. Just walking around this empty factory with these mad yeah. people. And everyone said, this won't work. And I went, it will work. And it did work. It did work. Right. Yeah. yeah. But the point is, for me, we've never met in person, but we've like intersected occasionally. And like, so 
that's an interesting amount of the future because like technically we're part of a network and we, like I've used networking professional networking to to message you on Twitter where you don't follow me but you you know who I am and I say oh hi Ben can I do this and you're like yeah sure fuck it why not because the 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 entry level is so low like obviously your time is expensive but you think I might as well I, I I think that's not necessarily a new thing I mean one of the I'm not saying, but the speed of it is the speed of it is true yeah and the connection of the bonds we are not friends we are friendly in terms sure. of we we don't dislike each other but sure. <laughs> but we met for literally five minutes sure. and i'm able to have like this very full spectrum awareness of the work you've done in public because mm-hmm. like i follow you on a thing called twitter and i can just look and see what you're saying and right. you're present on all these other platforms so like i've never been to a talk you've done but i've watched several hours of talks by you oh, you know you. but the point is i get really like i've got all this value whereas you charge people for stuff but Mm. i've like stole effectively stolen that knowledge or you know what i mean but in the old days there would have been a time where there would have been a person like you who was on madison avenue and i wouldn't know you existed and you'd be like a don draper and you'd be in a room and people wouldn't know who you were and you would affect things and you would be i don't know making gq covers that are interesting or making or, or like selling cigarettes when they shouldn't be sold anymore or, or whatever. I, I mean, you don't, I'm not implying that you do immoral things now, but I'm saying in the past, <laughs> that might have been the type of figure you were, but sure. I would, someone at my level would not have had any awareness, particularly you're older than me. You were more advanced in the industry. You'd have been at a, in boardrooms above me and I'd have been in a newsroom and we would never have interacted. So for me, that's why it's more interesting. The speed and ability to access is, better yes i think that's very true and i think i think there's an interesting lesson to learn there in terms of really any field of endeavor which is that you can well which is that things radically changed in the late 90s i was um a, uh, an on-staff reporter at the Times at the age of 22, mm. um, having not done any journalism qualifications nor worked my way through regional press or right. any of those things, which 10, 20, 30 years before, I would most definitely have had. However, I came out of tra- I, I, I worked my way up out of trade magazines. So there were still people right. still doing that, but it's but certainly not common. Right. And it was still, yeah, of course. And there are still people who do that today, but it, but it was, it wasn't, I was maybe one of the first generation of people for whom it wasn't obligatory. And Where did you start? What, because for readers, uh, not readers, for listeners, that might be interesting. Like, what, how did you end up? even in journalism like if you could do it in like two sentences like what's the what's the ben hammersley like origin story how did you become (laughs) spider-man um basically because i i had after i left school at 18 i had three years out and i lived in china for most of those and and why did you do that there's a whole bizarre backstory to that which is far too long but the but the point of the point of it is that i when i came back from there 
I decided that I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. And just like you said about wanting to be a music journalist in 1975, I wanted to be a foreign correspondent in 1968, but you couldn't, obviously I couldn't do that. Um, so I went, I ended up going to university at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. And with the idea that after I got a degree, I would go and be a foreign correspondent somewhere in Asia, again, right. reliving my sort of 1968 man in khaki in Saigon sort of, um, fantasies and in the first term at university i um i saw an ad in i saw two ads one was an ad for writers for the student website of the times mm. and the other was an ad associated press television which is the big tv news agency advertising for associate producers and so i started i answered both of them and one of them I answered by saying, yes, please can I write for you? So I started writing for the Times, Times' student website. And the AP one, I sent them an email saying, I am, I've, you know, this is what I've done. I've just started my degree. Um, when I graduate, I would like to, to do this job. Please can you tell me how best to get myself into a position so that in three years' time, when I write to you again, you'll give me a That's job. That's a great way to write to someone. And well, what happened with that was that they, about three or four weeks later, I got an email from their head of news saying, I've just gone through 500 job, job applications um, for that ad. Mm. And most of them were terrible. You're the only person who asked the sensible question. <laughs> um, <laughs> would you let, you know, come in and have a coffee? And so I went in and had a coffee. And, and the upshot of the conversation that I had with the head of news there was that, he invited me to go back in the Easter break and be and like intern there for, for a few right. weeks. And at the end of the internship, at the end of the Easter holidays, after about three weeks, they said, well, if you come back on Monday, we'll pay you. Right. And you thought, and okay. I, and, and so I was like, well, I need to go, actually, um, I need to go back to school, right. On Monday. And I, I went and asked one of the senior editors there. I said, look, I've got this quandary. You know, you're you're actually offering me the job that I want to get when I graduate, but I won't graduate for another three years. What's the deal? And he looked me in the eye and he went, "Nobody gives a fuck about your degree." <laughs> and, and so <laughs> I went back. And so I went back on Monday, right? And I never, I never completed that degree. And and um, so I was I was working full time as a news producer and writing and writing freelance stuff for the times and then and because so you were doing portfolio career stuff before everyone was going on about that yeah yeah and then and then basically what happened at the end of uh, about a year later was that i was i was the times had just moved to a new newsroom and they had a load of spare desks and so during the day i would just camp out which one was it in Wapping, and oh, you know where I live now i live in Wapping, and i used to do shifts there and now it's a very high-end um uh, apartment blocks Excellent, excellent. It had a terrible rat problem, so I hope that's continued. Um, the um, the so I had, but basically there was a spare desk in the technology section, and so I sort of camped out at it during the day, um, as, ostensibly as a place to work, uh, you know, as a place to do my stuff for the website. But because it was next to the paper technology editor, I kept sort of um, volunteering, yeah. and and then at round about ninety eight, they. they um, 
they just realized that they needed somebody to do that full time. And the ma- and and literally the managing editor came down <laughs> to the newsroom and was like, "Does anybody here know about the internet?" And everybody pointed at me and they went, "Oh, young Hammersley, come upstairs." And I got I was interviewed. And yeah. and, and the managing editor said, it was um George Brock who was the managing editor at the right. time and yeah. and he and he said uh, so why do you want to be a journalist and i and i just had this like running like, this sort of long running joke in my head about this which was because it's indoor work with no heavy lifting and it just sort <laughs> of came out of, it just sort of came out yeah. of my mouth um almost like i was like hitting a punchline and a joke. yeah and he and he laughed and he and he said okay and he just and he gave me a contract and so it was completely like happenstance right i i love that and i i just like because this is more like a conversation i try to make it more like a conversation than an interview what's really interesting is two of the things you've just said there are two things that basically happened to me a few years later one thing was i basically i, I was at pensions world magazine because i went to cambridge but no one in my family ever went to university before that and everyone sure. assumed when i left cambridge i would go to be at like somewhere famous quickly and some of those famous places said come right here because i got this reputation for being like a hammerer of keyboards at at cambridge and like i had a good Mm. stack of things i was a decent writer and i wrote crazy stuff but the places that offered me work wouldn't pay me pensions world said here have six thousand sixteen thousand pounds i went brilliant i'll come work for you because uh like i need a flat and i've got no money um and i I lived in croydon (laughs) i got pissed every i i lived in croydon pissed every friday night at an indie club called the black sheep went there with my friend tom and that was what always happened um and it was good i there's lag on the my video now which is very annoying and i think that's people in my in my house i.e my stepdaughter and and partner using the internet when they shouldn't be but there you go um it's the typical life of a financial but, journalist yeah yeah so, um, so anyway, I ended up at Star uh, Magazine yeah. um, writing about technology because the iPhone the, came. I, I think that the that's, iPhone um, came out. I think and basically I, every every journalist and certainly every interesting person out there has a has a similar story, which is, I think, ah, yeah. But the the uh, but the one the one thing we've got a delay now, so I, I'm hoping it will catch up, but. The one thing that I thought that, that you said that was very interesting is was about hanging around near the desk. Oh, you've gone. I'm here, but we have a delay. I don't know why we've picked one up. Hmm. Um, hold on. Mm-hmm. So I'm just telling people in my house to stop using the internet in, in the hope that it will stop the delay on this. Um, am I coming? Like, am I, ca- are you hearing me now when I'm saying things? Yes. Yeah. I, I was like, I see how I do this. Sometimes that works. Oh, there you go. Is that better? Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Mm-hmm. I think it's better now. Right, give me one second because I'm just going to make sure everyone's off. Okay. Hello. I can hear you, but you're no longer in camera shot. 
Uh, yeah. Hello, I'm right. back. I think we're better now. <laughs> um, cool. We can. I can it, drop camera. So that might help. What you, oh, I'll drop mine as well because it's going to be audio anyway. Right there, we go. Um. So hello. What I thought, hi hello. Can you still hear me? Hello, you. Can you? Yes, cool. can you hear me? I dropped the camera. Yeah, cool. so, yeah. yeah I did too. Um, yeah. So what I thought was interesting was when you talked about hanging around near the desk. I, like I did that comment desk at the Telegraph, and it picked me up a lot of jobs on other desks. Yes, I can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, and I think that sort of ties back with um, the the whole thing about access to people is that when you move into any new field, I think the first job that you that that would be sensibly sensible to do would be to identify who the best people in the in that field are, and then just go and hang out with them. And wh- whether you hang out with them in person or whether you hang out with them you know, online, you know, you follow them on Twitter and you get in and you follow, you become part of that sort of community um, is, is sort of, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's the, the, the I think the interesting thing is um, that was a funny noise. 